This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 63. Isaiah 63. Um, We are in a series called Revive, so we're not working our way through a book of the Bible, which is typical for us. Uh, But we are looking at different passages of Scripture that speak of God's renewing and reviving work. And so we looked at a couple of Psalms. Uh, Now we're going to look at a prophet. We'll probably look at a couple of passages out of prophets. Uh, We'll look at some New Testament stuff as well. But as we're getting going here, I want to let you know that at the bookstore, which is right back here, through that door, around there, uh, we have a couple of resources, a few resources we've purchased uh, for you uh, if you're interested on revival. Um, you know, if you just Google revival and start reading you, there's all kinds of stuff that you could find some helpful and, uh, some not perhaps. I think these are all very helpful. So I want to make you aware of them. First of all, here's a book called revival by Martin Lloyd Jones. Uh, he was a British pastor in the previous century, um, and, uh, very doctrinally astute yet very, very revival oriented at the same time. And, uh, the, uh, the forward is by J.I. Packer, which is excellent as well. So we have this book. Uh, we have another book by a guy who worked with him at the church named Ian Murray. Uh, and Ian Murray's written a book called Pentecost Today, question mark. The under, the, uh, byline is, or that whatever the sub subtitle is, the biblical basis for understanding revival. Uh, so he, he covers um, a lot of passages of scripture that deal with revival. He also looks at some historic stuff, and he also, he also offers some helpful critique of uh, some uh, excesses that can go along, which might not be biblical, but it can go along with revival as well. Uh, if you like to read history, I find history very stimulating on this subject. I'm going to be reading a couple historical things to you today very briefly. But uh, this is a book called A God-Sized Vision. This is pretty new. Uh, these other two are older books. Uh, Revival Stories That Stretch and Stir. Uh, so they are, he's covering uh, revival stories from the 1700s up until the present. And interestingly, some international stories I didn't know about. Some things happening in other parts of the world. Uh, this is by a guy named Colin Hansen, uh, who's a writer, uh, obviously. And then also John Woodbridge, who's a church history professor. And then lastly, for The Bold of Heart... Uh, the Fearless. Uh, this is a workbook. It's a different cover. I have the old one uh, called Seeking Him, Experiencing the Joy of Personal Revival by Nancy Lee DeMoss and Tim Grissom. This is a 12-week study, uh, and this is uh, strong. I mean, it, it is, uh, it's not just like a vague overview. It's like, let's open up our life and each day have a reading and a study. So this is a workbook that would be more of a study to go through personally. Uh, excellent quotes, insights. I found this very helpful as well. I haven't gone through it as a study, but I've read it over. So all of these are there. Uh, grab one and uh, do, some, do some reading along if you'd like uh, as we go through this series. Uh, let's pray, and then uh, we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for your mercy to us. Lord, thank you for the stirring that many uh, are beginning to be aware of, and we pray that you would stir us, God. Uh, we don't want to do anything to just sort of create something, but Lord, we want to receive something. 
your work. So, Lord, would you work, and as we look at your scripture right now, would you speak with a clarity and with a power? Lord, we pray, speak through your word and change us. Lord, we pray that your word would haunt us, that we wouldn't just hear it and leave, but it would stick with us, that you would, your spirit would track us down and open our hearts and minds and change us, we pray. So, Lord, have your way. Right now, we give you this time, and we are thirsty. We are hungry. We are desperate. Come down and speak to us through your scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this passage is similar to the two passages we've read. Every one of these are communal laments. They are the people of God lamenting, uh, their need for God, um, and asking him to meet them. And all three of these passages have a tone of desperation to them. You can hear it, a tone of desperation, um, which is really characteristic of renewal. The, the desperate heart. So we're going to begin reading in verse 15 of 63. Then I'm going to read all of 64 because this is a prayer and uh, it crosses into a new, new uh, chapter. 63.15, Isaiah 63.15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. From of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard. Or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls on your name, upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, 
where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Well, this is a time where obviously the people of God are in great need. And the heart of this entire prayer is found in verse 1 of chapter 64. It is, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As we've looked at passages talking about being restored and renewed and revived, it would be hard to find uh, a verse in the Bible that more accurately describes revival than this one. God coming down to his people with his presence. That's revival. That's renewal. That's what they are crying out for today, for God to come down. And I still intentionally have not offered a... um, uh, a definition of revival in this series, but I want to keep painting biblical descriptors uh, of it and, and keep getting in front of us what, what, what kinds of things happen uh, when revival comes, when renewal comes, when restoration comes. And this passage shows us a number of them. In a, in a book which is out of print called When God Comes to Church, you can get a used copy, When God Comes to Church by Ray Ortland. He, he comments and says, this is, as we look at scripture and as we look at the history of the church, this is what happens when God comes down. He writes, when God rends the heavens and comes down on his people, a divine power achieves what human effort at its best fails to do. God's people thirst for the ministry of the word and receive it with tender meltings of soul. The grip of enslaving sin is broken. Reconciliation between believers is sought and granted. Spiritual things rather than material things capture people's hearts. A defensive, timid church is transformed into a confident army. Believers joyfully suffer for their Lord. They treasure usefulness to God over career advancement. Communion with God is avidly enjoyed. People who had always been indifferent to the gospel now inquire anxiously. And this type of spiritual movement draws in not just an isolated straggler here and there, but large numbers of people. A wave of divine grace washes over the church and spills out into the world. That is what happens when God comes down. And that is how we should pray for the church today. It's a, it's a really good description of what happens when the presence of God affects his people. And that's what Isaiah has in view here. He, he prays and he's praying for the people, interceding for the people in, uh, in this section. And it's, it's sort of hard to uh, outline a prayer. When someone's praying, they're not typically working off a teaching outline. Um, but I think we could outline this prayer kind of in three movements. There's three longings that are in this prayer, which are true of renewal prayer. The first one is a longing for God's heart. That's the language I'm going to use. The word, I don't think the word heart's in there. Well, it's not. But that's the idea at the beginning, longing for God's heart. Look at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. So here's the feeling as they pray, God, you are distant. You are up high in a holy place that is beautiful and glorious. And we are down here 
And the implication is on our own. Look down from where you are and see us. Why? Because it's not going well. Look at verses 18 and 19. Your holy people had held possession for a little while of the land that God had given them. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. He's saying you were faithful to your covenant. You made a covenant with us and you were faithful and you gave us a land But now we don't have that land anymore. As a matter of fact, your sanctuary has been trampled down. And um, so he's looking back at what God has done for his people, and he's recognizing we're not in a good place. A member of our church pointed out to me very helpfully last Sunday that... um, that I had missed the opportunity, he didn't say it like this, but uh, he was gracious, but I had missed the opportunity to point out sort of the covenant ideas that were in the two Psalms we've studied, and they're here as well, and they are the basis for the appeal for revival. In other words, what they're saying is, God, you made a covenant with us. This is your sanctuary we're talking about. We're your holy people that had this land. God had gone in Genesis 12 to Abram and said, I'm going to make you a people. And I'm going to make you a nation and I'm going to give you a land. And he covenanted to do this. And he said, out of you, out of your people will come one ultimately that will reach the nations. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So God promised, he selected this people on his own. He promised that they would be his treasured possession, that he would give them a place, that he would make them a people, that they would be set off and marked uniquely. They would have a temple where he would be worshipped. They would have laws and practices that would be markers that would separate them from the nations as his special people, his holy chosen nation. And what they're saying here is, God, you made that promise to us, and yet now the sanctuary is gone. And verse 19, this is grievous. We have become like those over whom you've never ruled. We're indistinguishable from the nations, God. You chose us and marked us. Now we look just like the world, like those who, have not, uh, who are not called by your name. You put your name on us, and now we're not distinct. The, the distinction that would call us to be set apart has been, has been shut down because of their sin. We've become just like the world. That's what he says. We're worldly. We are like the world. There's no distinction between your people and the world. And when the church looks like the world, there's a need for revival. When the church is indistinguishable, when the goals and the values and the behaviors and the lifestyles of the church looks like the world, then there is a need for God to intervene, and that's what they're praying. And the prayer is to do that for your glory. This is about your name, your sanctuary. They're making a covenant appeal, God. This is about you in your covenant love and faithfulness restoring us, even though we're responsible for our sins. He's going to talk a lot about sin in this passage. We're responsible, but we need you. We need you. And so that's the situation. And so they pray, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Verse 15. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Here's what he's saying. Where's your heart for us, God? Now, where do I get that? He doesn't say heart. He says, 
uh, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion. So, Lord, where's your zeal for us? Where's your might for us? Where are you coming in and showing zealous love for your people and changing things? And where's your heart for us? Now, we use the word heart, and we mean affection or inner person, something like this, um, the core of our being. Uh, Hebrews didn't use heart. The Hebrew people didn't think of heart in that way. They didn't use that, that language. They used the language of, well, a number of different things. Our, 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 even, the, even speaking of like the bowels of compassion. So like it's still inner organs. So like your inner parts represent uh, affection and compassion. I'm glad, I don't know if it's British or English, I'm glad we ended up with the heart, personally, because Valentine's is coming up, and my wife, Ginger, will be blessed if I say, I heart you. If I say, I small intestine you, I don't think she's going to be blessed uh, to use the, the, the bowels of compassion, but that's what it means. So that's why he says, your inner parts and your compassion are held back. So the heart is, God, your heart is 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 held back from us, you're separated up in heaven for us. And this is a big theme because this word held back, if you look at the end of the prayer, verse 64, 12, it says, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Restrain yourself is the same Hebrew word as held back. So the whole prayer is about God, would you come down and don't hold back your heart from us? Don't restrain your presence from us. Don't withdraw your tangible love from us. Don't remove your felt presence from us. But here it's a longing for his heart, his compassion. Asking, don't restrain your compassion from us. Why? Verse 16, for you are our father. You're our father. You love us. You discipline us, which is what they're experiencing, but you, you, it's loving discipline. You're our father. Come near us. Be moved by your compassion. Father. We're familiar with father language. In the Old Testament, there's very little, very little reference to God as father. You can read the Psalms and you see God addressed all kinds of ways, but not father. And when father is used, it's like this. It's corporate. You're the father of the people of Israel. Jesus revolutionizes that and prays to my father and teaches us to pray the same way. So now as believers, as Christians, we have an intimate personal relationship with the father, but here they're using the same, Isaiah is using the same language. You're our father. You love us. Be like a father to us. Though Abraham does not know us, verse 16, and Israel does not acknowledge us. If Abraham could come forward and say, how did this covenant all work out? And he looked at us right now, he wouldn't even know who we are. We look so much like the nations. We worshiped idols and now we're under discipline and we're in a foreign land or we've just returned from a foreign land. It doesn't say exactly when this happened. We look just like the nations. Isaiah would say, what's the difference in these people and the pagans? I mean, I'm sorry, Abraham would. So Abraham may not know us. We might not have the markers of being your people, but you're still our father. So father, would you touch us? Oh, Lord, 16, you are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. God, you rescue redeemer. You redeemed us out of Egypt. We were slaves. You brought us out. You're still that redeeming God. You haven't changed. So would you act for us? Why do you make us wander from your ways, 17, and harden our heart so that we fear you not? We could spend a long time talking about that. Let me just briefly say, what they're not saying is that, God, we're not responsible for our sins. Read the rest of the prayer. They're very aware of their sins. He's not saying, God, we were serving you. We were moving along, passionately following you, and you went zap, hard heart. That is not what happened. 
It's kind of like in Pharaoh, uh, the, the Pharaoh, the, in, in the book of Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and it says that God hardened his heart. Which is it? It's both. God hardens those who harden themselves. We, we harden our hearts, we sin, and it points God will let us go in that. It could be viewed perhaps as a passive hardening, but he allows us to go in our way and harden our hearts and go down our own pathway. And, and they're saying, Lord, don't, don't allow us to live with a hardened heart. Don't harden our heart. We, we, we fear you not. It, it's all a prayer that this would change ultimately. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. God, do this. We're your people. And we ask you to make us look like your people. This is a model prayer for praying for revival. And here's two things we find out about this prayer in this first section, where they're longing for the compassion of God, longing for the father, father heart of God, longing. We learn two things is that renewal prayer is honest. It's honest. Nobody's play, they've played games, but nobody's playing games right now. This isn't some formal, ritualistic, religious deal. This is gut level. God, we look like the world. It doesn't even look like you've ever redeemed us or that you're with us. It's honest. It's gut level. Lord, here's what it seems like. It seems like you're up in a beautiful holy place doing your deal, and we're down here in, in, in a terrible environment. So, Lord, don't, don't be far from us. It's honest. Lord, you, you've let us wander. You've hardened our hearts. Lord, change this. So it's really honest. Really honest. I, I find as I read the Psalms, they're just much more honest in their approach to God than many of us would be, certainly in public. We may think some of those things privately, but... So it's honest. Number two, it appeals to the character of God. Renewal prayer is prayer that appeals to who God is. God, you're our father. And we ask you to father us with a compassionate heart. Lord, you're our redeemer. We ask you to redeem us again because we're enslaved in a different way all over again. It appeals redeemer, father. You see that kind of language, Lord, where we are your people. So you are the God of your people. Work in us. Return to us, he prays in verse 17. Return for the sake. That's renewal prayer. Return to us. We return to you. You return to us. We don't want to have hardened hearts going our way. We want to return to you. We want to ask you to return to us. You're the God who implicit in that is who forgives and restores. So renewal prayer is honest and it appeals on the basis of who God is. Who God is. Longing for God's heart. His love. Secondly, there's a longing for God's presence. Look at verse 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. One guy I read said the most important word in this whole prayer is oh. I'm not sure I could defend that, but it's, it's an interesting point. Because the fact they're groaning after God shows that renewal's already starting to take place. If renewal wasn't taking place, they wouldn't care. They wouldn't be talking to God. But they're starting to talk to God, and they're crying out. They're, Isaiah is directing a cry to him. They're no longer wandering blindly, but he's praying, oh, as he intercedes for the nation, oh, there's a desire for God to work. Some of us in the church, you're experiencing a a, a desire for God. You would say, I don't see God necessarily doing anything real new in my right, life right now, but I'm desiring him to do that. 
God's already started. That's a stirring. That's from the Holy Spirit. The devil didn't give you that desire. Your flesh did not rise up and say, Lord, I want you to work in my life. Where do you think that desire came from? If you're having an increased desire in this season to know God, if there's a stirring, even a subtle stirring of your heart, that's the Holy Spirit. And we want to ask him to breathe on that. We want to fan that flame. We want to put ourselves in a position for him to speak to us and to do more. So, oh, God's at work. There's a start. There's a need. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Now, this isn't a prayer that's giving us sort of theologically um, precise language about the nature of God. It's giving us, it's from the heart. It's giving us language that describes heart experience. Would you come down? It's not as if God is located to a place, that God is literally up there and he's literally not down here. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. Psalmist says, there's no place I can go to escape you, away from you. God is everywhere. He's not making a theological statement that the nature of God is that God is in one spot at one time and he's up there now, so let's get him down here someday. That's not what he's saying. he's, He's making a statement about experience He's making a statement of experience. Yes, God is everywhere. But Lord, we, we're not aware of your felt presence. So he's praying in verse 15, look down from heaven and see. That's felt distance. Um, that's felt absence. Now he's praying for felt presence, that the mountains might quake at your presence, that we would be aware of your presence. He's, he's praying that, that you would rend the heavens. Rend means to tear or even to violently tear. He's saying, I look up at the heavens. When I look up at the sky where you are, again, figuratively, but when I look up at the heavens and towards you, it's like all I see is a curtain. There's some curtain that separates me and us from you. And here's what I'm asking you to do, God. Rip that curtain and come through it and come down to us. Tear the barrier down and come among your people with your presence. That's renewal. That's restoration. That's revival. It's, 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 we're aware of God. We're aware that he's here. It's like when he came down and, and mountains quake. That certainly happened uh, at the giving of the law. It could be referring to that. It could be referring to just some barrier that seems immovable and the Lord shakes it. He's present. He's here. He's with us. That is the cry of Isaiah. Come down in our midst and make us aware of you. Like when fire kindles brushwood, fire burns the wood. There's an effect. The the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, sometimes compared to fire. Verse 23. uh, I'm sorry, verse 2. Verse two, when fire kindles brushwood, when the fire causes water to boil, when the fire is present, it heats the water and it boils. The fire brings an effect. And he's saying, would would you come down with your presence where you're sent, where we sent you, we're aware of you, we're cognizant of you. We know you're here and there's an effect like fire burning. Lord, would you do that again? It's a very human cry, a very experiential cry. He wants the nations to see this. Make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. He's praying that, God, you would come and that you would affect us, that you would do great things for us, that you would rebuild your sanctuary through us, 
that you would restore your presence to the land and the nations would see, see God is alive. That, that the nations wouldn't look at the church or the people of Israel and say, they're just like us. They would say, they're different. God's hand is on them. He's affecting them. He's changing them. God is on display so that unbelievers recognize him or recognize something's going on. And that's why there's a longing for his love. Father, would your love touch us? Would you look down and come near us and return to us? Longing for his heart, longing for his presence. We need your intervention. In our own country, one of the greatest if not the greatest season of renewal that ever took place. is called the Great Awakening. It happened in the 1700s, and one of the prominent leaders that you probably know his name is Jonathan Edwards. And uh, he was in an environment where, uh, where there was great nominal Christianity at some points. That means people carried the name and the tradition. It was a more religious society than ours would be today. Uh, Christian religion, um, but people were had a had an external faith, but many of them didn 't have a real faith and God visited this church in Northampton. Um, God visited them in wonderful ways, and in one thousand seven hundred and thirty five this is what he wrote that this is like the presence of God coming. He said, "The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. I need to let you know one thing before I read anything else. Jonathan Edwards was not a flaky emotional. He's one of the smartest guys in American history, greatest theologian probably in American history. He was an academic and an intellectual. So he he wasn't just quick to say, woo, what's the latest uh, uh, zinger? Let's go for that. He's not a very emotional guy from what I've read. But this is how he describes it, which gives more credibility than the uh, sort of hyper-emotional person. But this is what he writes. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It, It never was so full of love, nor of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn. Husbands over their wives. Wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies, that means they're when the church gathered for worship, our worship services. Our public assemblies or worship services were then beautiful. The assembly in general was, from time to time, in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress. Others with joy and love. Others with pity and concern for the soul's of their neighbors. He just said it was different. Spirit of God came down. And even the preached word, people were affected, weeping over their sins, weeping with joy over forgiveness, compassion for the lost. Everything changed is what he says. Many people came to Christ in that, in that revival. There's another guy before him, a Puritan named Increase Mather, I mean, that is a name increase. We're not having any more kids, so I don't get to name any more children, but I can recommend names. I recommend increase. Name your kid increase. 
I increase must decrease so that he may increase. That's, now you could say that. Increase Mather. In, in Boston, in 1721, he was a pastor, and this is what he said. Quote, O degenerate New England, what art thou come to at this day? How are those sins become common in thee that once were not so much heard of in this land? New England, how could you be so far from God, so degenerate? from God, that things we never imagined would be part of our culture and in the church is who we are, 1721. 1740, so 19 years later in the same town, this is what George Whitfield, who was a revivalist, a preacher as well, this is what George Whitfield said in the same city. There are so many persons that are coming to me under conviction and for advice that I have scarcely time to eat bread. Wonderful things. Are doing here. The word runs like lightning. Renewal hit at the town. So in one time, you have a leader saying, this is the most hard-hearted bunch of people I've ever seen. And then George Whitfield later says, there are so many people lining up under conviction for advice. And by advice, they're not saying, he didn't mean, do you think I should take this job or that job? He's saying, what must I do to be saved? That kind of advice. Conviction, what do I do? The Spirit of God is convicting me. I need a Savior. He's saying, I don't even have time to get a meal because everybody's in a line to ask me how to be saved, to ask me about repentance. It's like the Word of God is like lightning. Increase Mather preached. He's a faithful preacher. He preached the Word of God, hard hearts. Nobody responds. And then the Holy Spirit moves in renewal, and a guy comes in and preaches, and it's like lightning. That's renewal. That same year in 1740, uh, this is something Benjamin Franklin said. And and there's all kinds of debate, which I'll not enter into, uh, about the faith of the founding fathers. But I've never read anybody claiming great faith for Benjamin Franklin. I think he's safe to say that he was not uh, like one of, uh, you know, viewed as one of the most godly necessarily individuals. So that's why his testimony means a lot to me here. He said this, he was in Philadelphia in 1740 when this renewal was taking place that George Whitfield was preaching in, and Franklin, an unbeliever to my knowledge, to my knowledge, it could be wrong, but to my knowledge, an unbeliever, he said, it was wonderful to see the change in the manners of our inhabitants. That'd be an unbeliever. Their manners changed. Well, really something else changed. In the manners of our inhabitants, from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, It seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town, the town of Philadelphia, one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing the psalms sung in different families on every street. Hey, nobody was very interested in religion. And then all of a sudden, if you walk down the street, that house and that house and that house and that house, they're singing in worship to God at night, singing the psalms. What happened? The spirit of God. What happened? 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake in your presence. That's what happened in the great awakening. The spirit came down. And that's what he's praying for there. When verse three, when you did awesome things that we did not look for. I just read you some awesome things in American church history that people were not looking for perhaps. And that's what he's saying. When you did things we did not look for, verse 3, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. God, when you came, we were not expecting the stuff you would do. It was glorious. And we're asking you to do that that again. These three 
two and two-thirds messages that I've preached on this topic, topic um, could, could make some of us nervous. Because, you know, what, what are we asking for and what's going to happen and what if nothing happens or what if something really dramatic happens or what if something happens to them but not me or what happens if something happens to me but not them? What, there could be all kinds of thoughts or what what what. This was shared Thursday night at the prayer meeting. What, what would happen if God did renew me, but it wasn't anything like what he did in the past, and, and uh, what would that be like? I don't think it would be like anything in the past, because when God comes, he does surprising things. God's not predictable. God knows our exact need. We often don't. And so here's the comfort, is that we're asking our Father, who loves us, to be moved by compassion, to draw near to us and to help us repent and draw near to him and to come with his presence. That's good. That's always good. That's glorious because we're, we're not praying for a specific thing to happen necessarily. We're not praying that, God, you've got to do something that looks just like this, which is a little bit of a risk of me sharing a lot of examples, but I'm just trying, I think it's helpful as well. But Lord, what we're asking you to do is be yourself in our midst. In your presence, be with us, and that will be good. And if you've been renewed before and he renews you again, I I would assume it wouldn't be identical. I would assume it would be exactly what you need at this stage in your life, just as it was exactly what you needed back then. Because God knows everything, and he's your father, and he loves you, and he pours out his presence upon his people. I'm going to move along here for time's sake. Um, Let's look at verse 6. He moves on and begins to talk about their sin, their sin and their effects. Why do they need revival? Because of sin. Because of sin. If they were perfect and in heaven, they wouldn't need to be renewed. No repentance in heaven. But now they need to be renewed, and their sin has had great effect. Look at verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. Lord, we're unclean. Lord, we have have acted in a way where we have defiled ourselves by the world and by sin, by our own hearts. We've defiled ourselves, and like a leper is unclean, we're defiling. We've been defiled, and we're defiling. God, we need you to come down. We need renewal because our actions, our hearts, our lives are like, have the characteristic of uncleanness. We need to be washed afresh by you. Secondly, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's not just that we're sinfully unclean. Even our good deeds are offensive to you. Even our good, even our righteous actions. See, like we're like church people that go through the motions. So we're in church. We're not on Sunday morning during Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, sleeping around, getting drunk, stealing, abusing people. We're, we're, we're doing religious things. We're at church. The problem is our heart's not in it. And so even our righteous deeds are offensive to you. They are like, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The word literally is referring to a menstrual cloth. That, that, that's what it is, Lord. This is something that, that is, that is un, not pleasing to, to you, he's saying. So we're unclean in our sin. Even our religious activity, our, our good deeds are offensive and sinful. We all fade like a leaf. 
Got some of those brown leaves. I got a late a tree that drops leaves late. I got brown leaves all over the place around my, around my house right now. And uh, that's what we're like. There's, it's not connected to life. It's brittle. It can't restore itself. We're, we're like that. We're like an old flaky, fading like a leaf. One, once had life, now it's been zapped from us because of our sins. Our iniquities are like the wind. They take us away. Our sins have just carried us away. Now would you come down and carry us back to you? That's what he's praying. Why do we need revival? Because we need to be renewed, restored, repent from sin. That's what they're saying. There is no one, verse 7, who calls upon your name. God, we have been a people who have not devoted ourselves to private and public prayer and worship. We're not calling out to you. We're not that kind of a people. Who needs, who needs revival? People that don't pray need revival. Churches that are weak in prayer need revival. Israel needed revival because they didn't call out to God. Second phrase, who rouses himself to take hold of you. There's no one rousing himself to take hold of you. God, we've been taking hold of other things. God, when we need comfort, we reach for something else besides you. God, when we're anxious and fearful, we reach for something else besides you. Lord, when we're lonely, we reach for something else. Lord, when we're tempted, we reach for something else. Lord, we're not a people that is calling out and reaching for you. We, like the world, are reaching for the same things that the nations reached for. We served their gods, and that got us into trouble. And now you've disciplined us, and we're asking you to restore us from discipline. That's what they're praying. That's what they're praying. Lord, help our heart. Change our actions. So why do the people need revival? Because of their sin and the effects of the sin. Because of the people historically not called out in a passionate way to God. That applies to some of us in this room, maybe many of us. It applies. These are these, we, we can find ourselves in the text. We know what it's like to be these kinds of of people, and so we can pray this prayer with Isaiah with genuine, genuine passion. This last point is going to be super brief. Longing for his love, longing for his presence, and the last thing is longing for his work. There's one picture in here I want to highlight in the last four verses, five verses. Verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our Father, repeats that, but look at this, changes the image. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. God, you, you're the potter and we're the clay. This is a very different picture. We're wet clay and God, here's what we ask. We ask you to mold us, to shape us, mold us, shape us as your people. Give us new life. Give us a heart for you. Change us, Lord. May we not grow familiar. May we not live with the normal. May we not give ourselves to spiritual mediocrity at best or outright rebellion at worst. But Lord, would you draw us to yourself and would you mold us shape us. Verse 10, 11 says your land is desolate. It used to be beautiful here, but now the places have become in ruins. Lord, we used to have a vivacious living relationship with our God. We displayed your glory. We longed for you. And it doesn't even look like that anymore. We look like the nation. So would you come? Verse 12, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? 
This is the heart of the prayer. He is longing for God's love and heart. He is longing for his presence, and he's longing for his work. Would you shape us? Don't restrain yourself, but shape us. Bring us out of sin. Bring us out of hardened hearts. Bring us out of complacency. Bring us out of the culture. Bring us out of American Christianity um, and in its weakest ways. I mean, there's strengths in American Christianity, but bring us out the sort of weakness that's nominal, that just plays a game, that just does a duty. Bring us out of that and shape us is what he's praying. Longing for his love. Revival is when... God answers this prayer. Revival is when God answers the prayer that he looks down, we are aware of his heart, he showers his presence on us, and he molds us and shapes us to be the people he wants us to be. That's renewal. Revival is when, in fatherly love, God comes down to us with his felt presence and pulls us out of sin shakes us out of complacency and begins to shape us anew for his glory. Motivated by fatherly love, he shapes us. With his presence, he shapes us. That is what revival is, and that's the heart cry of this passage. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't need that? There's no person that doesn't need at some level. Now, we may not be nearly in the dire straits they are. We may not be as a church or as a society or... or, or, you know, maybe, maybe it's not the same place. Maybe it is for some of us as individuals. But all of us need this. We need God in view in a fresh and in a new way. Are you willing to be honest before God about where you really are? Not just honest before God, but honest before the Father who loves you. Are, are we willing? This is a dangerous prayer. I mean, this whole passage is a dangerous prayer. It's not really, if we see the nature of God, not praying this prayer is dangerous. We think it's dangerous and risky. What's risky is to go on with business as usual. That's risky. That's foolish. But this is a dangerous prayer. God, bring your presence and do surprising things in me. God, I am wet clay. Mold me. We can try for years to change ourselves. God, with one stroke of his hand on the spinning clay, can mold and shape us like that. Make me who you want me to be. Soften my heart. Clean me in a fresh way. Apply the blood of Christ to me and clean me as I repent. Change my righteous deeds so that they're not polluted, but they're glorious before you. Don't make me a fading leaf. Make me a leaf filled with life. Don't let my iniquities like the wind, it says, verse 6, blow me away, but may the Spirit blow me to you. Blow me in repentance. We are the clay and you are the potter. We're the work of your hand. So shape us, Lord. That's the prayer. Let's pray together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.